You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? Welcome to What Like It's Hard, the podcast that celebrates and explores the academic study of popular music. I'm Kirsten and I'm back with another episode of What Like It's Hard. Before we get started, just a reminder, What Like It's Hard is a partner of Student Minds UK, so when you subscribe through the Patreon WLIH podcast page, you aren't just supporting the network, you're also supporting the UK's leading student mental health charity. 25% of every subscription goes to the efforts made by Student Minds to empower students and members of the university community to look after their own mental health, support others and create change. What Like It's Hard is non-profit, so the other 75% goes towards creating a funding scheme that will help subsidise conference fees for graduate students, as well as aiming for an in-person What Like It's Hard conference that will be free for all participating students. You can be sure your donation will make a positive impact on the academic study of popular music by supporting both the mental health of current students and faculty, as well as progressing the accessibility of popular music research. You can find all of the information you need over on the website, which is www.wlihpodcast.com. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Sadie Hockman Ruiz, who holds a PhD from the University of California, San Diego, in the Department of Music's Integrative Studies program. Her dissertation, The Social Politics of Queer Drag, a study of San Diego's queer community and queer core subculture, foregrounds an intersectional approach to womanhood, addressing homeland narratives and diasporic identities within a multiracial drag scene. Researching the project, she performed as the drag queen Sadie Pins and engaged in creative research methods such as performance ethnography, public humanities and research justice. Her current research focuses on trans studies and transnational queer communities. Sadie recalls being in a Denny's past 1am with members of her extended drag family when one of her sisters, Strawberry Corn Cakes, calls her drag political. Strawberry explains herself saying that she labels Sadie's drag queer and her own as LGBT. It was in this moment that Sadie says she was struck by the way queerness attached to whiteness and upward mobility byways of her graduate school background. In her article, Why Political, Sadie unpacks the heavy racial baggage attached to doing queer work as it is currently defined. By including an origin story for queerness within queercore subculture, Sadie uses queercore sound, the soundtrack of queercore co-founder Bruce LaBruce's first feature film, No Skin Off My Ass, from 1991, to analyse the race and class dynamics of doing queer work. Sadie offers observations from shifts in art practice as a performer ethnographer in which she responds to challenges of marrying queer drag with its anti-racist and anti-capitalist intentions. 
This article brings together music studies, queer of colour critique and critical university studies in a way which centres performance-based work as a privileged site of critical intervention. With this work, Sadie encourages artist researchers to rethink the relationship between the political intentions of their performance practice and the critical theory with which we isolate and claim those politics. Hi, Sadie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Nice. You're in Toronto, right? I am in Toronto. I'm so jealous. I moved back to Scotland just before the lockdown, which is great because I'm here with my family. But I love Toronto. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I just, um, you know, I just finished my PhD in San Diego where I was um, for six years. So I'm back here again. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. And the city is so different. Honestly, I mean, it's been about, I want to say 10 years since I lived here. So the city's just changed so much. What's changed about it? Um, You know, all the places where I used to know, like, this is where you're supposed to go to hang out. Mm -hmm. Everything has pushed, like, way further east and west. Um, And just, like, the middle of the city is almost unrecognizable. Places like Kensington Market, Uh um, you know, even, like, the neighborhood are all, like, really different so um it's fascinating to come back and hear it again nice interesting I've only been there well I moved back now but I was only there for two years I moved there in 2018 and I moved back just um about maybe three weeks ago four weeks ago (laughs) okay wow well yeah four weeks ago to be going all the way to Scotland yeah it's fine (laughs) yeah I do miss it though (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Toronto's a wonderful city, you know? It's It's wonderful. It's just different than I remember. Yeah, it's so great. But, you know, everywhere in the world is (laughs) fine, especially when you're in a lockdown situation. How weird. Um, I know. I know. know. First, just run me through your academic life. How did this all start? Um, Well, I went to Queen's University for undergrad. Um, Queen's University in Kingston, not the one that's over closer to you. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I went there, um, you know, I really wanted to study music mm-hmm. uh, because I had really kind of devoted my life to music up until then, you know, playing yeah. in bands all the time, writing mm-hmm. music. Um, but I had the obstacle of really being a popular musician, you know, okay. electric guitar yeah. was my first instrument and I just didn't have a conservatory background Mm -hmm. um so you know I went to Queens thinking that studying music was actually just going to be impossible yeah um so I studied philosophy um and you know I did a lot of feminist and continental philosophy I did a lot of Foucault uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of philosophy of art and that was sort of my compromise but As I went along in my undergraduate career, I started to realize that there was this thing called popular music studies, which um, blended the sort of cultural studies track that I was on in philosophy, Mm -hmm. but, you know, zeroed it in on music studies. Um, 
you know, in my first year, I took like that, you know, big lecture, popular music, Uh you know, popular music and culture, (laughs) however, hundreds of people um, that we all take (laughs) because we think, you know, it's going to be the fun class and we (laughs) like music. Um, and now I teach them and I resent the people who take it because they think it's going to be a fun class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. They think it's going to be a bird course. Yeah, and, and they're like, just, oh, it's they not. can't like, <laughs> clap on beats or figure anything out. I'm just like, oh my God. Anyway, so that class was taught by um, Kit Pegley, <laughs> who turned out to be the first queer person and the first... Um, trans umbrella person that I would ever meet. Um, So they became really important for me in a lot of ways, Um, not just as like a figure who is doing this thing called popular music studies, but also as a, an early queer role model. Um, And I kind of just really took to it from there. Uh Um, Kip helped me put together my application for the music and culture program at Carleton university. Um, which I, when I started, was only mm-hmm. in its third year. Um, it was an interesting, it's basically a master's in cultural studies that happened inside of a music department. So there was no real um, performance requirement. Um, it was a bit funky in that regard. Yeah. Um, you know, we had a really motley <laughs> group of um, only six people in our year. Um, and people came from backgrounds, you know, people were non-musicians, um, people were all sorts of musicians. You know, I come from more of like a punk noise background. Someone else came from more of a folk background. Other people were more of an orchestra background. Um, and then while I was completing my, uh, master's in music and culture at Carleton, I was working with John Shepard, um, who was in the nineties was a big name in the sociology of music. Um, and he happens to be the Dean of Graduate Studies at Carleton. Um, Music is Social Text, if anybody knows that that book, that was him. Um, mm-hmm. And he recommended this program at UCSD um, because <laughs> he saw that I was primarily a performer, um, but really never got an opportunity to do anything that had to do with performance um, because you know, as a punk guitarist and drag queen, I am not really (laughs) suited for uh, a lot of performance programs. Um, And he recommended this UCSD program (laughs) called Integrative Studies, where it's all about, uh, I mean, it's sort of a musicology program, but it's all about collapsing the boundaries between scholarly inquiry and um, composition and performance. Um, So I was able to, you know, do a full-on research dissertation, but at the same time also do performances um, and have those performances be part of my dissertation project. Um, I did drag and I did, I made a punk record and that was all part of it. So that's kind of where it wound up. There's a lot more in it, but that's of like course. The, that's the <laughs> that's a summary. Perfect. <laughs> it's interesting how you say that, you know, you didn't come from a kind of conservatory background 
in the sense that you weren't necessarily a performing musician. And I think that's such a topical issue when it comes to studying music, because everyone thinks that they need to be the best performer and all music courses must have a performance element. Having your master's degree surrounded with all of that variety, and you said even some some non-musicians, how important do you think that is to have such a wide variety of different people studying music, but not necessarily from their performance background that you might expect? Uh, it's it's really important. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important for music scholars to read outside of music studies. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, my my primary like my go to texts that I really have been using for years now. A lot of them are not music studies. Mm-hmm. They're you know queer theory, queer of color critique. Yeah performance studies, um, critical race studies. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really, um, it's hard because for a lot of people, they get this kind of like chip on their shoulder with music studies being sort of always five years behind mm-hmm. everything else. Um, and, you know, they want to like, well, let's frame this within music in order to like move our field forward. But um, I don't know. I'm very much a believer in transdisciplinary um, work and just um, those sorts of collaborations. I think it's it, it's great for people to read of really wide range. Yeah, of course. And the paper that you have for us today that has a really interesting story of origin I guess and you state in that paper that it's written in a storytelling format how important is storytelling when it comes to researching music um how important is storytelling you know storytelling is really important to me as a performer Mm -hmm. you know I'm like I really am a performer through and through, even if I don't have the right qualifications sometimes. Yeah, of course. Um, my paper that I published before this one, uh, the one that I'm presenting is going to be in music cultures. And then I had a paper before that in, um, oh, it's some permutation of the words critical studies, media, and communication. Mm-hmm. I don't know how what order the forwards, but the journal's <laughs> called like Critical Studies in Communication and Media, or Critical <laughs> Studies in Media Communication, <laughs> Critical Media and Study and Communication. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that one, you know, I start off with this really thick description of a St. Vincent performance because it's all about kind of like punk guitar and noise technique. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I have like a lot of storytelling in that too. It's, it's like something of a theme for me. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, uh, performance ethnography, um, which is, um, a form of, uh, you know, it's a really wide, uh, ranging idea, but the, the core of it is that you're doing your ethnographic work, which is, you know, immersing yourself in a culture and learning about it Mm -hmm. while you are a performer, yeah. And actively creating uh, and, you know, intervening in your culture and um, producing meaning. Yeah. Um, so 
you know, I have a lot of like a large reservoir of stories just being someone who is very often in a field, in the field doing performance, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I also, um, you know, it's really important for me that my research questions are responsive to my community. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll see, you know, in the, uh, art, the paper that I am presenting, um, the research question was really given to me by a collaborator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just decided to take it in the way that I wanted to take it. But um, I didn't generate the, the question on my own. I, you know, I borrowed it from someone. Um, it's really important to me that we create research that's in, that is meaningful to communities. Of course. Um, and that's, you know, was sort of my effort of doing that. Definitely. So if you're happy enough, um, whenever you're ready, if you want to give your paper. Sure. Um, so for the listeners, this paper is a little bit on the longer side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, so it's going to be available in its entirety in an upcoming uh, special issue on queer musicking for uh, the journal Music Cultures. But I'm going to read... The introduction and the section that's sort of the most sound studies heavy. And I'm going to offer just sort of little summaries of what goes on in between. Uh, The paper is called Why Political? Blackness and Queer Urban Geographies in Toronto and San Diego. And the first section is called Discourse at Denny's. It's after 1 a.m. and I'm sitting in a Denny's at a table for 12 with members of my extended drag family. We're celebrating Strawberry Corncake's birthday. The night began watching her perform at The Rail, one of the eight different venues that regularly host drag shows along a one-mile strip at the center of San Diego's neighborhood. Afterwards, we had gone out for drinks at a local bar frequented by San Diego's trans community, drunkenly arriving at our current location seeking late-night comfort food. One of Strawberry's friends, a plus-size burlesque dancer named Kina Butterlove, asked me about my drag. Due to time constraints, that night I had done quick mugs with my friend and collaborator, Ariel Conversi. I was a bit of a gender fuck. I wore short shorts with fishnets. I had none of the padding that's used to create the illusion of a feminine figure. I had my eyes and lips done, but no foundation or contour. I sported a a dangling earring with a bald head. Strawberry answered Kina before I could. She said that my drag is more queer and her drag is more LGBT. The difference between the two is that mine is more political, in her words. I didn't want to talk over the birthday girl, so all I added were some details about my recent projects. Ironically, I always saw Strawberry's work as being very political. The show she organizes, The Gig, was meant to gather all the African-American drag queens in San Diego. When she was still working out the details, Strawberry told me how frustrating it was that so few of the Black queens get to work together. I doubt Strawberry would contend that her show isn't political. She's confided in me many times about how hard it is living, and especially dating, while Black and gay. Against the recent mobilization of the far right in Trump's America, the creation of safe spaces for people of color have taken on a political urgency. Particularly because I've never used the word political to describe my own work. I went home that night thinking about what it takes to have one's work resonate as political. I expect to hear the word political in descriptions of a queer performance, 
Jose Esteban Munoz describes queer performance as able to facilitate modes of belonging, especially minoritarian belonging. Queer performance critiques social asymmetries in a growingly visible LGBT community by staging desire that resists, that resists binary heteronormative gender roles. In this article, I materialize a hidden musical history that sheds light on the racial politics of queer performance. Munoz draws parallels between queer and punk performance, both using populism, amateurism, and destruction to imagine a time where their t- desires are not toxic. My article tethers queerness to punk through a genealogy that places subcultural fashion and art making as formative influences on the intellectual history of queer theory. I consider queerness an extension, as an extended history of queercore, a zine-based mid-80s Toronto sound subculture which concerned itself with re-radicalizing LGBT art and activism. These subcultural art makers had mobilized the term queer in opposition to assimilationist gay and lesbian identities, laying the foundation for scholars to later theorize queerness as political and resistant. Catherine Jean Nash and Alison Bain argue sexual identities are rehearsed spatially through the claiming of space, that the rehearsing of queerness emerges in specific ways which allow its, uh, sorry, in specific spaces which allow its inhabitants to resist hegemonic gay and lesbian identities. San Diego's queer community shares members and spaces with San Diego's local scenes dedicated to avant-garde arts and grassroots political activism. That is queercore's legacy. The queer community's central infrastructure is widely dispersed and scattered around the city. There is a community center separate from the larger LGBT center, a small number of conscious businesses and also artist workspaces. But compared to queer spaces, the LGBT spaces are much more developed and centralized and thus easier to both find and access. Hillcrest has been the center of San Diego's gay and lesbian nightlife since the 1970s. Gay business owners revived the neighborhood from economic stagnation by opening a strip of bars and clubs for patrons seeking refuge from homophobic persecution. The density of Hillcrest's nightlife continues to draw large crowds. Even as their patronage has grown well beyond the LGBT community, the symbolic power of the neighborhood remains of importance in assuring the safety of gender and sexual minorities. From a queer perspective, the capitalist aims of these institutions mar the political function they perform. Strawberry called on distinctions of queer and of LGBT to categorize my art, even though we had never talked about our work in those terms. The, the pedagogies of belonging and modalities of knowing that steered this moment of differentiation were unspoken and embodied. Even as they attached to these terms, they signaled other much more basic modes of being and self-understanding. Identity-based clues colored the way I received Strawberry's comments. Contextually, I felt I was being singled out as queer in ways which marked my whiteness and class privilege. When Strawberry situates her art as belonging within the LGBT community, the gesture points to the white privilege and classism that has been problematic amongst queer activists and artists. But LGBT spaces also have a complicated relationship with anti-racist politics. Hillcrest is an apolitical space that hardly challenges hegemonic structures of white supremacy. The neighborhood entered its phase of urban renewal through the efforts of white middle-class gays whose politically moderate views are well-documented. Even while advocating for social change, their political and economic agenda has been steered by pragmatism and the desire to be ordinary. 
Munoz calls these anti-utopian wishes. Hillcrest was built to secure for the gay community a social recognition that could only be aided by the success of Hillcrest's entrepreneurial class, even as it expedites gentrification and the displacement of the, neighbor- of the neighborhood's poorer communities. The fact that so many of the performers are African-American and Latinx is a credit to a division of labor which, which disproportionately places POC, people of color, in precarious positions of employment, jobs with inconsistent hours, no security, and that require tireless self-promotion. QPOC, queer people of color, uh, feel alienation even as they open up spaces of belonging in Hillcrest. Strawberry may categorize her work as LGBT, but is it easy to be a QPOC performer in those spaces? I doubt she'd say yes. This article is driven by storytelling. The scenes that I depict have been pulled from my data collection as an artist researcher engaged in performance ethnography. The narrative quality of storytelling raises an important question in performance studies about where the proscenium begins and ends. When, within this article, gayborhoods act as stages against which queer performances of gender and sexuality read as disruptive. Similar to Christopher Small, who argues music is an activity rather than a thing, Performance ethnography demands a looser understanding of the stage, one which accounts for less literal instances of performing identity. This article turns to Toronto of the mid-1980s, wherein the queer core movement reclaimed and invested the term queer with its contemporary meanings of resistance and refusal. Co-founders G.B. Jones and Bruce the Bruce hinged queer refusal to an anti-capitalist critique of an increasingly gentrifying neighborhood. I bring this archival work into the present by narrating moments I have shared with my collaborator, collaborator Strawberry Corncakes in San Diego's drag scene. These moments tease out how the performance of queerness, both in the original Toronto scene and today, carry with it an unmarked whiteness. In this article, I take the scholarship, zines, and films to discuss about how ideas about queerness and diversity were labored upon on multiple registers, both scholarly and artistic. By studying the way queercore navigated Toronto, I inherited a set of questions about consumerism and normativity. These questions taught me how I ought to navigate San Diego, but also came up short in productive ways. San Diego, as a border city, colors questions of racial difference, of whiteness, and normativity with a more intense hue. My move from Toronto to San Diego demanded I dig deeper into queercore and to ask better questions about how its aesthetics its sound in particular, and politics can generate the divisions of race and class which with they attempt to solve. Uh, the next section is called Don't Be Gay or How I Learned to Be Queer and Navigate Toronto. Um, this is one of the ones that I'm going to skip over, but I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary. Uh, this section explores the origins of queerness as a term. Uh, the term was first used in a way which specifically calls upon an anti-capitalist refusal of gentrification in a zine by queer core founders Bruce LeBruce and G.B. Jones. It was called JDs, and it ran uh, in the mid to late 1980s. Um, queer core had a very complex racial politics. It occurred coterminously with the multiracial expansion of Toronto as a city, but failed to build a a multiracial following to its anti-gentrification message. Um, 
as the following uh, section on sound, which I am going to uh, read in its entirety, will demonstrate. Uh, punk aesthetics foreshadow uh, the recuperative work that would need to be done by queer of color critique beginning in the late 1990s. All right, so I'm going to start in sort of late in this section awesome. and move through um, the aesthetics of queer core, how it's rooted in punk and the racial politics that became um, sort of hidden within it Perfect. from there. Cool. I narrate this history, um, and that was the history uh, intersecting the history of uh, queer core subculture with the history of Canadian immigration, because the JD's era portends the slow and difficult process by which queer scholars would need to question how to foster radical coalitions with queer people of color. Though Don't Be Gay is silent on um, Don't Be Gay is this essay mm-hmm. by Bruce LaBruce and G.B. Jones that's kind of their manifesto. Uh, Don't Be Gay is silent on the quick-growing whiteness of the Church Wellesley neighborhood. The call to refuse normativity resonates with those who find themselves of an increasing, uh, outside of an increasingly disciplined consumerist gay and lesbian identity. The work of scholars like Munoz or Kathy Cohen show queer of color critique has always been present in queer identity as a potential and the p- possibility that somebody might tease these ideas out. For Munoz, the use of we in queer writing addresses a, quote, future society that is being invoked and addressed, and addressed at the same moment. The Don't Be Gay essay states, we are expected to follow and accept the dominant ideology of the gay movement as inevitable. Uh, writing for Munoz is a performance that unlocks modes of feeling together. It ha- hails all those who imagine themselves as welcomed by this futuristic society. We, the outcast. My present research in San Diego uh, confirms that the queer we sometimes works in paradoxical ways. Lauren Berlant and Elizabeth Freeman identify the paradox of queer identity in that it exploits internal difference. It refuses closeting strategies of assimilation and goes for the broadest, most explicit assertion, assertion of presence. My experience of queer space in San Diego has suggested the way queerness exploits uh, racial difference specifically might be connected to the fetishization of alterity that runs adjacent to histories of colonialism and imperialism. These forces, led by desire, complicate San Diego's urban sexual geography. It's hard to figure out where QPOC fall in a partitioning of a queer we and a straight them, even as QPOC often rely on queer spaces for safety in navigating the city. In the following section, I turn to sound as one mode in which queerness is performed. Punk Sound's fetishistic racial politics historicizes JD's inattention to whiteness and queer core's uh, critique of gay assimilation. Punk Sound differently orients bodies within queer spaces, pointing them elsewhere in the way it encloses ideas about race, sexuality, and belonging. All right, so this is a section called Black Sound, No Skin. Mm about Bruce LaBruce's first feature-length film, No Skin Off My Ass. Um, if we listen to the film soundtracks of Queer Core co-founder Bruce LaBruce, the sounds through which he articulates his critique of, like, of gay classism, we witness peace, people of color being ghosted into his writings and films. I borrow from Roderick Ferguson to materialize the ghostly presence of non-European migrant workers in British punk. 
Ferguson rereads Marx's work on capitalist surplus value, Marx, uh, minding Marx's inattentiveness to how the devaluation of working class labor interacts with slavery and the migration of racialized ethnic minorities. By the time punk arrived in the late 70s as a commentary on capitalism and, de and decline, non-white laboring bodies were deeply implicated as the human surplus, what Ferguson calls surplus population, that accompanied capitalism's international expansion and the displacement of the working class. This is Ferguson's words. Both superfluous and dispensable su surplus populations fulfill and exceed the demands of capital. These populations always exist as future laborers for capital, always ready for exploitation. I argue that not only did British punk lean into these racial tensions, it played with a long-standing trope of citing gender and sexual chaos to discipline these diverse populations into assimilation. In flaunting their own sexual deviance, punks and queers celebrate the violent repression that was most intensely directed towards racialized ethnic minorities. Ferguson's work on Marx is more impactful in a study of sound if it is put in dialogue with music scholarship. Ferguson's key points intersect with Dick Hebbage's uh, subculture, the meaning of style. Building a dialogue with Hebbage's work clamps down Ferguson's wide historical archive with a strict focus on British youth subcultures in the post-war era. Hebbage invests in punk's populist cut-ups the same deviant significations of British working-class subculture, both to be read as white translation of black ethnicity is the word that Hebbage uses. Ferguson traces the fear, uh, fears of working-class debauchery to the early expansion of the labor force in the 19th century, when working-class women, white women specifically, were newly bestowed with economic mobility and had displayed a desire for ribbons, lace, and silk. Middle-class observers interpreted this nascent consumerism as a sign of awakening sexual appetites and an unrestrained id. The working class, both men and women, will become subject of spectacle with reports of their licentiousness spread to pathologize their sexuality. British youth subcultures, mods, skins, teds, etc., are a testament to how central fashion would be remain in uh, conjuring these anxieties. Punk, and this is Hebbage's words, provided the tabloids with a fund uh, of predictably sensational copy, reproducing the entire sartorial history of post-war working-class youth cultures in cut-up form. In many cases, the fear of working-class promiscuity, engendered by ostentatious fashion, intersected directly with, quote, racial mythologies about non-white populations, uh, supposedly abnormal reproductive capacities and outcomes. That's Ferguson. Uh, Hebbage has insisted on this point, arguing that the anxieties leading to the punk movement were explicitly about the effects of Black immigration on employment, housing, and quality of life. Caribbean migrants in Britain had increased from 17,000 in 1951 to 269,000 in 1966, uh, triggering a right-wing uh, backlash that would last throughout the 1970s. The decolonization of Jamaica in particular and the migrant workers who left the island in search of work in Britain became the immediate carriers of old tropes concerning the sexual pathologies of the working class. In the case of the skinhead, punk's most lumpen precursor, the, clo the clothing, and this is the word of Hebbage, uh, simultaneously embody both the cultures of West Indian immigrants and the white working class through a clean-cut, neatly-pressed, delinquent look. 
In the late 70s, the far-right National Front infiltrated England's skinhead culture in cities with large working-class communities. The far-right made efforts to mobilize a youth movement, hoping to parallel the left's generational sw- uh, shift in swelling membership. Young people of the 60s and the 70s responded to the left's youthful leaders who paid attention to popular culture and music. The far-right saw punk, a music which preached apocalypse and flirted with fascist imagery, as an opportunity to mimic this process. Punk spoke to white working-class youth, many of whom had felt alienated by the left's ongoing cultural turn, which emphasized race, gender, and sexuality. The National Front fostered an aggressive image that simultaneously reconciled territorial loyalties and socioeconomic concerns with racial identity and a sense of purpose. The hope was to attract a mass movement of teens using the skinhead image to embody the imagined persona of the young white nationalists. But the National Front's efforts to grow their membership were mostly unsuccessful. As punk, two-tone, and oi were each reclaimed by the, or claimed by the far right, such claims were resisted, countered, and overwhelmed, and the far right necessarily constructed its own variant of punk slash oi, reconfiguring the skinhead image into a recognizable but distinct subsect of broader subculture and establishing alternative networks of communication. Bruce LeBruce, co-founder of Queer Core, uh, reanimates the skinhead in Toronto as a vehicle for parody, with more than a decade of distance to, to, from the peak of the original. The skinhead's titular role in No Skin Off My Ass, 1991, brings out all the complexities that have befallen this subcultural figure. Habbage only catalogs an early 1970s moment in British skinhead subculture, in which the skin's effort to recover working-class community were articulated through their interaction with Jamaican youth, copying their dress, their style, their curses, listening to their music. No Skin Off My Ass deals with the late 1970s skinhead and his machismo, which LeBruce introduces to parody punk subcultures growing heteronormativity. Neo-fascists prime the skinhead for this kind of intervention. The sense of purpose the skinhead would provide to working-class youth was partially rooted in affirming a conception of masculinity that demands a binary and heteronormative thinking of gender. Punk's refusal of sexual normativity had become increasingly steered by normative masculinist desire. Women were being mistreated as if they were if they were not uh, conventionally sexy or girlish and available to date, and gay sexuality was being performed as a disgusting act to repel mainstream audiences. Uh, the skinhead's connection to neo-fascist xenophobia allows the Bruce to exploit its regressive political image as it assaults a multiplicity of marginalized subjects. No Skin Off My Ass tells the story of a gay hairdresser in early 1990s Toronto and his forbidden homosexual love for a skinhead. The skinhead is placed by Klaus von Brucker, the queercore pseudonym of LeBruce's then-boyfriend Nicholas Davies. The parody of a dramatic name is a heavy-handed reference to the far right's racialized conception of Europeanness. LeBruce plays the hairdresser as a haughty femme with a breathy, lilting, speaking voice and impeccable diction. LeBruce strikes up a sexual relationship with the skinhead whose sexual identification is kept mysterious. The plot unfolds and suggests the skinhead may be playing gay to con the hairdresser. Bell et al. argue the parodic hypermasculinity of the gay skinhead evokes a nostalgia for the era of street cruising and promiscuity. The gay skinhead resexualizes gay men's bodies in an era where the accelerated acceptance of gay communities hinged on the privatization of sex. 
LeBruce ends no skin off my ass with a long sex scene. He queers the skinhead, thereby disarming his aggressive white heteromasculinity. Parody pervades no skin off my ass, which, as LeBruce's film buff audience would know, is a spoof of Robert Altman's thriller That Cold Day in the Park, 1969. The character sketches are derived from the Altman original. In That Cold Day, Michael Burns plays The Boy a mute hippie who takes advantage of Francis Austin, played by Sandy Dennis. Austin shelters the mute boy from the rain only to find she's being hustled. She follows him to find that he's neither mute nor homeless. Because of this, his affection is proven, at least to Austin, to be untrue, and her broken heart eventually leads her to murder. The Bruce mimes Austin's creepy behavior. He bathes the skinhead, just like Austin bathes the boy. Austin plays into every misogynistic caricature one can imagine. She plays the old frigid woman with her hair in a tight bun, unable to land a husband. She plays the baby crazy lunatic, imprisoning a boy in her guest room so that she can have a child. She plays the jealous girlfriend, entrapping the boy by hiring a prostitute to confirm her worst fears. Her character is solely motivated by things she needs from men, love, sex, fidelity. The character sketch gives LeBruce plenty of material to act as a femme foil and to queer the skinhead's masculinity. Sound deepens LeBruce's parody. The opening of No Skin Off My Ass is said to Fred's song by Beef Eater, um, a quiet but jaunty acoustic number with the refrain, skinhead guys just turn me on. Uh, it's from the mid-80s, I think 85. Mm-hmm. Given that hardcore scene was uh, founded through quickened tempos and increased volume, Fred's song itself is ironic in tone, which plays into the film's insistent parody of the Altman original, of punk subculture, and of a modern gay identity. After introducing his own sound world, LeBruce toys with That Cold Day in the Park soundtrack. It's written by jazz composer Johnny Mandel, steered by a quiet and ominous collection of winds intermixed with sparse open chords on the piano. LeBruce reuses snippets of this score, lifted with poor audio quality, this wind ensemble texture becomes thematic material that accompanies LeBruce's character as non-diegetic sound. It soundtracks LeBruce's darkest depression as utter inability to feel erotic desire. Sound snippets from that cold day in the park are contrasted with electric guitar noise and snippets of punk songs. The latter are paired with the skinhead uh, and his lesbian rebel sister played by G.B. Jones. The soundtrack follows the cuts in the film. Sometimes the texture will only be heard for a few seconds. Concept drives the soundtrack more than coherence. Close attention paid to sound instructs how the relationship between LeBruce and Von Brooker is staked on burying and resignifying the racial tensions that animated the British punk movement. In one scene, LeBruce coyly leans over a cassette player and tells Von Brooker, I'm taking a music appreciation course. I try to listen to at least one hour of music a day. The scene is deeply ironic, given that Bruce understands himself to be a connoisseur of punk and it had, at that point, founded a subgenre of punk music rooted in a painstaking archivalism. Each issue of JD's includes a growing discography of hard-to-find punk records with queer ly- lyrical material titled The Homocore Hit Parade. The bourgeois nature of music appreciation lessons adds another dimension to Queercore's parody of the gay middle class. LeBruce, playing the wannabe punk, uses these lessons in a misguided attempt to search for meaning amidst workplace alienation. 
Highlighting the hairdresser's haughty femme, LaBruce pops in a cassette of Fran Jeffrey's Sex and a Single Girl. Von Rooker is clearly uninterested and grabs a cassette from his jacket pocket. He puts on Operation Ivy's punk ska cover of These Boots Were Made for Walkin' by Nancy Sinatra, titled One of These Days by Operation Ivy on their uh, only album Energy, uh, released through Lookout Records in 1989. At a blistering 175 beats per minute, the guitarist executes Ska's iconic skank rhythm. Uh, guitar chords are played on the offbeats with upstrokes to accent the higher registers of the instrument. Ska, a Jamaican style, fuses Afro-Latin, African, and African-American influences into its unique rhythm. Originally, the music was a moderate tempo, danceable and popular in Jamaica. The music sped up when migrating to Britain, hybridizing with punk, the resultant sound becoming two-tone. Ska landed in Coventry, England, an important hub of of automotive manufacturing and production that had welcomed a large number of Caribbean migrant workers. Ska soundtracked a hybrid culture in a uh, cosmopolitan city. During the two-tone movement, ska bands changed in demographic, functioning as a space of collaboration for black and white musicians. Skinheads, ones only fans of ska music, increasingly became involved as performers. Hebbage works through the demise of a coalition between white working-class Brits and Jamaican immigrants, which he characterizes as always extremely precarious and provisional. Skinheads had turned the raw, energetic, and aggressive sounds of early turned to the raw, energetic, and aggressive sounds of early ska, hoping to reconnect their severed relationship with a work, working class community and, by extension, their masculinity. Dressing, talking, and dancing like rude boys was a method of embodying a marginal, the marginalized and police hypermasculinity of the black migrant worker. But the, skins of, uh, but the skin sense of working class community was fractured by much less tangible changes than a fictitious a- attack on masculinity. Working class communities evaporated through the myth of classlessness, the privatization of space and gentrification. The inability to affect political change and continued fascination with ska sound culture led to contradictory results, like a small pocket of neo-fascist ska fans who listened to the only all-white bland, uh, ska band, Madness. As LeBruce notes in a voiceover, subcultures don't offer solutions to problems, they just play them back in style. One of these days compresses into sound the history of skinhead culture and the drama of cross-racial contact in British working-class communities. It is an important history of the skinhead look that Bell et al.'s study uh, on London's gay skinheads never addresses. An attentive ear can, decif- can decipher an approximation of the guitar hitting the offbeat, even in spite of Tim Armstrong's sloppy guitar technique. The whitewashed versioning of the skank rhythm makes audible the contestations through which the skinhead's look evolved, from a copy of Jamaican style to a neo-fascist imagining of socioeconomic minoritization. Operation Ivy's politics are left-leaning and are in no way uh, affiliated to far-right musical movements. However, the band is significantly less musically sophisticated than earlier interracial ska groups like the Specials, the Selectors, the Body Snatchers. Punk amateurism had become racially coded following the suburban hardcore movement in the United States and Canada, which was significantly whiter than its urban uh, predecessor. Located in the Greater Bay Area, Operation Ivy are more immediately affiliated with hardcore movement than two-tone ska. They collectively yell the lyrics into the microphone with no attention to melody, which would never happen in a two-tone ska record. 
These musical knowledges pertaining to ju- subgenre register with avid punk listeners. No skin off my ass queer ska and skinking only by hiding this tense and complicated history of cross-racial identification. In the late 1990s, queer of color critique began writing of, a diff- of the difficulty activists experienced uh, in translating from theory to practice queer culture's expansive understanding of who belongs in their spaces. Kathy J. Cohen's 1997 GLQ essay, Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens, checks in on countercultural queer activism and its difficulties addressing racism. She commends theoretical conceptualizations of queerness for their attention to intersectionality, but wonders why activist groups like Queer Nation Act Up have trouble materializing these alliances. Cohen ultimately cycles back to the theorization of queerness itself, arguing queerness preaches multiplicity, that sexuality cannot be understood apart from citizenship, class, gender, ethnicity, etc., but thinks of power as a single-issue phenomenon. The straights have it, queers don't. This monolithic understanding of heterosexuality streamrolls over prohibited and stigmatized heterosexual unions featuring people of color, a steamrolling which Cohen parallels to her experience of queer activist spaces. Cohen solves the problem by reorganizing the queer we, making example of the non-normative and marginal position of punks, bulldaggers, and welfare queens as the basis for progressive, transformative um, coalition work. I wonder if the problem is not so much is not so specific to theory as it is to participating, to listening and moving in queer culture. It is an odd oversight given Cohen's uh, interest in the punk as a queer socio- sociological figure. By materializing a history of punk sound, I offer to Cohen an alternative way of approaching the failure of queerness's theoretical conceptualizations to fully transform the politics of queer spaces. Sound and meaning now plays an important role in the politics of queer and changing the politics of queer spaces. Labrousse's image of the punk has become dated in a growing queer rap scene and more QPOC-led punk generated um, by an increasing number of hybrid cultures and identities in late capitalism. Uh, dialogue with scholarship is partly responsible for new demands and updating the accessibility of queer spaces. Jay Halberstam describes the boundary between subcultural participants and marginalized academics as slight or at least permeable. As a performer and an audience member, I can bring myself as an example. A study of queer culture needs to reckon with its persistent autocritique. Uh, for the final section of this article, um, I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to give a little bit of a summary so we cool. can wrap this up. Um, the final section explores how... Um, this racial politics um, that we see in No Skin Off My Ass both has and has not evolved. Um, queer performances change in demographic, uh, and I said largely due to a permeable uh, boundary between scholarship and art making. We're seeing a lot more of this queer rap, um, which centers race in the subculture. My own process of arriving at my project, uh, my dissertation project, involved... Um, a very counterintuitive escape from these DIY spaces um, and uh, an escape towards the neighborhood. Um, and that's where I found myself able to um, build the collaborations in order to prod the racial politics of queer performance. Um, so the article has this really funky way of going all the way somewhere 
just to come mm-hmm. back um, from the gayborhood into this detour through um, queer subculture and then back um, and kind of kicks off um, the rest of my dissertation work. Anyway, that's the paper. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> First of all, though, um, I'm interested mainly because, well, you started this yeah. um, paper, Why Political, as a <laughs> response. Has Strawberry read your paper? Has Strawberry? Strawberry hasn't read it, but Strawberry mm-hmm. was at my um, my defense, and I talk with her like nice. every day. So she knows everything that's in there. And we've done um, we've done follow up interviews, and that you know the dissertation continues cool. to have Strawberry as a key collaborator uh, collaborator throughout. Amazing, nice. And what was her kind of response to? I guess your response. You know, um, Strawberry. Uh, there's like significant class differences between the two of us, obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm going for a PhD and she works, um, as a performer and in the service industry. Um, I think that one of the things that is really difficult to do, but also so incredibly important is trying to phrase your research in a way that it doesn't overwhelm and um overwhelm yeah overwhelm um diverse audiences which um for the sake of gaining a phd i kind of had to a little bit (laughs) um so she hasn't you know we had a talk and the funny thing is that um you know strawberry and uh i have gotten closer and closer from working together. And by the time that she heard the paper, when she heard the dissertation, um, she herself had started to become way more experimental in her drag and identifying more so as queer, um, which just opened up um, a whole new series of research questions for me to ask Mm -hmm. about my role in um, San Diego's drag community and how I am reshaping it and opening up opportunities for um, dissent. Uh, So Mm -hmm. every time I talk to Strawberry about it, we end up having this sort of, well, that was then and this is now uh, kind of conversation. Yeah, I guess that kind of goes back to what you were saying before with music studies being, you know, five years behind you're always trying to catch up on your last piece of research. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What main differences do you think that you brought in, and this can be through your performance or just through sound, what have you brought to the San Diego American drag scene from Canada? Yeah, I don't want to take all credit for it because there's a lot of really important people um, that do similar things like um, Vivi the Force um, started a show in the neighborhood mm-hmm. called Whips and Furs, um, where I got my start in drag, which was a punk drag review. Um, yeah. And um, there was just a whole bunch of people that were doing drag to Susie Sue and 
Disturbed and all this weird punk music you wouldn't think about. Uh, the Latinx community mm-hmm. is also really into punk drag. Um, my friend Cruzy Fiction always performs Kate Bush. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, who else do I have to put shout outs to? BB Gun, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to like make sure um, I put everybody's name out there. Um, there's a lot of really important people um, who have been changing um, the drag scene and the success of Dragula, the punk drag show as an alternative to mm-hmm. RuPaul's Drag Race has really helped with this. Um, so, okay. you know, I think my role um, has mm-hmm. always been as a little bit of a mediator. Um, I kind of have my foot in a lot of different scenes. Um, and I have conversations um, with people who don't always talk to each other. Um, and because of that, um, as you can course see in Why Political, I kind of know what's going on in the queer performance art scene and also what's going on in the um, gayborhood with the like very glitzy um, pageanty scene. Um, so, you know, yeah. that's kind of been my role, um, having conversations. I think actually more than anything, um, being a trans person uh, and, you know, starting to transition um within um while being a member of the drag scene you know a lot of people um Mm -hmm. came to talk to me actually about transitioning and about access to hormones and what to expect um Mm -hmm. so in a weird way um that i think is what i'm perhaps most known for um in san diego more so than um being the phd now (laughs) Nice, both incredibly important. Um, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the word political. Uh-huh. How much does the description of political in drag or in the punk scene equal the notion of power? Um, yeah, you know, when I talked to Strawberry about what she thinks political is. She yeah. described it as anything that's in your face. Okay. Um, so there is a kind of a, you know, the, the term in your face connotes a particular intensity, um, volume, um, power to it. Um, so... I think that um, it's really it's really fascinating because you know on that hand on that hand um, Strawberry's definition would definitely push us in a direction towards um, you know power political is about being powerful but um, you know a lot of the um, discussions about what it means to be political and drag uh, have to do with just loving yourself. 
um, which isn't exactly a, a, a powerful, um, it's not a statement that is trying to exert power over others. It's trying to just sort of be strong, withstand something. Um, yeah. So in that way, it's a little bit more passive um, mm-hmm. rather than uh, being sort of like what we would think of masculinizing it, you know, power, active influence, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. So that's that, that's a really interesting thing that um, I'm certain can be explored um, much better <laughs> by someone who takes the <laughs> full time. <laughs> Is there a parallel um, mm-hmm. of a queer core movement or, or genre, mm-hmm. I guess, in San Diego. And what is it and what are the differences between the two? So queer core, like, started in Toronto because um, it was kind of like the first people that were using that word. That's really why I said it, because there were people like, they were hardly the first people to um, mix punk and queerness, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, but it was the probably it was the first punk subculture yeah. um, for gay and lesbian participants explicitly, um, and only for gay and lesbian participants. Um, so queer core. Um, Mm-hmm. began with these zines uh, that were made by Bruce the Bruce and G.B. Jones. Um, they were two film school dropouts um, and, who were just sort of part of the experimental art scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and they met up with the guys in um, San Francisco, uh, Tom Jennings and Deke Nielsen, um, when the Tom Jennings and a few others had gone to Toronto for an anarchist convention in the mid eighties. Um, they gave them a copy of JD's and then Sandy, uh, San Francisco started Homocore, And those two happened about simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of like led into this high point for um, queer core where Bruce LeBruce was making films. Okay. You have people like vaginal Davis doing a lot of stuff in LA okay. who was collaborating with them. Um, there was a couple pockets that opened up in Chicago and New York, and I think in Texas, mm-hmm. um, towards the late nineties. But then after that, um, queer core, um, kind of, it became, um, really diffuse. Uh, it was really, um, you know, during that high period, I would say there's a there was a way to put boundaries around queer core and separate it from queer performance art. Um, whereas around the early 2000s, I would say we got to a point where there was okay. no longer um, that possibility. Uh, it was just too fluid. So the San Diego scene right now um, is really just a queer performance art scene. Um, which, you know, has a lot to do with the aesthetics of queer core. It's, um, building a queer movement that is anti-capitalist and a refusal of gentrification. Um, so, you know, it has those things in common, but what San Diego does, um, differently is San Diego is a border city. So, um, the, 
collective, the people that are involved in this performance art scene are more diverse and are definitely more educated on issues of immigration, um, border crossing. Uh, Because San Diego is um, right on the border with Mexico. There's a lot of people who, you know, their daily reality is Mm -hmm. crossing the border multiple times a day, commuting in from Mexico. Yeah. Um, So those issues come to the forefront a lot Mm -hmm. more. Um, A lot of the sort of the DIY art spaces are in Chula Vista, which is a um, predominantly Latinx suburb um, south of the city, about like seven or eight minutes away of a drive away from the border. Um, So, you know, the um, border art is really important there. And Mm -hmm. people who program um, queer DIY events are always very conscious about creating these uh, or foregrounding these intersections of uh, queerness with race and queerness with citizenship, um, which in Toronto, you don't really see as much. Right. Is there any kind of correlation to the Riot Girl movement at all? Um, Yeah. I mean, Riot Girl was also like, kind of like a parallel movement to queer core um riot girl Mm -hmm. started around the time when queer core really became a musical movement um in the 80s it was more so zine based and the people that were involved in it Uh were mostly dealing in zines and experimental film um, but in the late 80s, early 90s, okay. a guy named Matt Wadden-Smith, um, who was working at Maximum Rock and Roll, um, ended up leaving and starting his mm-hmm. own label called Outpunk, um, where he would work with bands called like Pansy Division. Um, and there was a lot of Olympia-based bands that uh, he would work with. He was based in the Bay Area. So there were connections between um, the queer core scene of the 90s that sort of uh and matt wobbinsmith was a little bit less experimental art a bit more skate punk um and that scene um oh what's their name uh let me what's the band that's from olympia that he recorded i have a mokul teo fairies um they i have a single from them i have a 45 somewhere um that matt wobbins recorded and they're from olympia so you know there's ways to like map these um to map these um yeah movements together but um you know Mm -hmm. the riot the queerness of the riot girl movement is um a topic that's really complicated um my favorite um artist uh author who deals with that is sarah marcus in her book girls to the front um she has a really good kind of like take on riot girl and queerness um which you know centers the queer participants in the movement while also um acknowledging um how many issues they had um being uh, a distinct minority. Yeah. 
in those spaces. Punk has always, you know, represented minorities, and you kind of go into that a bit. And I really liked when you spoke about how punk celebrates identity by refusing to blend in. To what extent is this reflected in the drag scene? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because drag is in such a new phase now, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. The mainstreaming of drag has created um, a lot of, a, a small group of drag queens into essentially international performing uh, stars. You know, someone like Trixie Mattel can really do a world tour um, and play large sold out audiences um, mm-hmm. and, you know, perform in a way that really is altogether not so different from what we would imagine someone like Sam Smith performing, you know, um, yeah. or Katy Perry. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the taboos around lip syncing have really shifted, um, in the past 20 years, um, okay. or even like 15 years, you know, when was the, um, mm-hmm. at SNL, um, Gifa, um, with, uh, what's your name? Ashley Simpson. Um, uh-huh. You know, so drag, um, well, at one point, it definitely was like uh, a drag queen always stands out. Um, Now it's kind of like, you know, we joke when we're hanging out in the neighborhood as like, uh, you know, you can't sneeze without um, having your snot land on a new drag queen. Um, It's just (laughs) like they're everywhere. Uh, Someone's telling you to follow their Instagram and please get me a booking and do you want to be my drag mom? Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, um, how at one point, you know, doing drag itself was something that was really, um, would make you different, but now it's more so like, what kind of drag do you do? You know, um, okay. yeah. what, what ways do you perform gender? Um, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a lot of different ways that drag queens perform gender and some of them really resonate with some of the most, um, some of the largest capitalist markets um, with, or like that are, you know, aimed at um, a gay audience and some of them, yeah. you know, are into um, weirdo um side projects and making, um, you know, kind of like DIY drag scenes. Um, people in LA, I'll give a shout out to Pussy Tuesday um, and the whole Queer as Punk show as people who are doing that, you know, creating like a DIY queer punk scene that very much is like standing out and doing yeah. things different. You spoke a lot about class, music appreciation of the middle class, kind of bougie and music appreciation. How does that reflect on punk? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because punk is all about archivalism and it's about, um, you know, 
finding your mm-hmm. 10 favorite most obscure records from the 1960s mm-hmm. you know your favorite b-sides it's the high fidelity stereotype right uh yeah and you know um i think you know you study punk so you'll be aware that um punk is this contradictory space where you're supposed to stand out by being different but it's always a majority of people who are Mm -hmm. really the hegemonic figure in rock history you know they're just white heterosexual men um so you know the idea Mm -hmm. that um something might be bougie about punk um doesn't really strike me as much as a of a contradiction in uh the sense that we can say like oh well we can see why different parts of uh, different elements of the punk culture lean yeah. towards yeah. different practices of punk that appeal to them. You know, some people are into zine making or filmmaking or performance art. Other people are into record collecting and starting bands. Um, <laughs> yeah. So punk's commentary on the working class as a spectacle, the notion of, being a spectacle do you think that that provides the working class with a certain power dynamic that they are the spectacle yeah um i think so um you know jose esteban munoz um in his book disidentifications um deals with um the issues you know the uh, issues surrounding race in um in queer culture but also the idea that um QPOC performers like queer people of color who are performers are also supposed to um find belonging here as outcasts in this consumerist gay identity so he calls um the participation of queer people of color in these queer cultures yeah. as a, a disidentification with it, not an identification with the art, a disidentification. So it's the way that you are, um, there is this dissonance, this distance. Um, and you can see that, and uh, you know, he has a great um, take on vaginal Davis and her work um, as a black intersex performance artist in queer core. Um, you know, and I, I would say that for the working class, um, there's a similar thing where you have to, there's a, this sort of like distance that you understand it from. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a distance, um, but not, uh, it's not empowering in and of itself. It's like something that needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. So when you speak about Bruce and his, I guess, his imagery of the punk, and you say it's quite dated mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Where is that imagery now? And what are the future projections for the punk image? Oh, well, I mean, the LaRousse imagery, I mean, the, um, like the skinhead imagery, um, there isn't much of a, like, queer skinhead, um, that thing isn't really around anymore, you know, um, 
Ron Athey doesn't really do all that much anymore. He was probably the last person to be uh, mm-hmm. kind of doing it. Um, I don't know if you know Ron Athey, but he's a queer performance artist in LA um, who's pause. He's uh, AIDS positive and he does a lot of performance involving bloodletting. Um, and that's kind of like the last space where you have this like queering, the like very butch, um, macho skinhead type thing. Um, yeah, you know, LaBruce is, um, LaBruce moved on, Uh um, from that no skin off my ass. Um, his most recent films, um, he did one about gay zombies. So, you know, he kind of moved from, um, he moved from, you know, punk and skinheads over to horror, which, you know, if we think about punk and horror, like they're very adjacent genres. Um, he also did a film that was a little bit more high mm-hmm. production called uh, Gerontophilia about um, yeah. a guy who works in an old folks home with a fetish for having sex with um, elderly folks. Um, so he's still into like the sort of like into fetish cultures. Um, so he has mm-hmm. like, you know, his, um, his message is still this, you know, core, like against normativity. Um, you know, he's always like, you know, doing things that are weird, experimental, a little bit too gory. Oh, he has, um, oh, I forgot what that movie was called. He did one recently um, where there was like a, this um, lesbian feminist nunnery in like rural Germany Mm -hmm. um, who capture a boy and like the boy wants to stay and they like force him to go through um, gender reassignment surgery in order to like keep him around. So um, yeah, that's really gory as well. So, you know, he kind of like, this whole, um, the idea of the skinhead as an anti-normative image um, transformed into like horror and monsters and uh, fetishes. Bringing it back to your drag for a moment, would you say that your drag is political and what makes drag political? Would I say that my drag is political? Um, no. <laughs> absolutely not um you know i um because i think that like when people say their drag is political Mm -hmm. they're usually alluding to a very specific um genre of performance that involves a lot of like um gender fuck and um Uh I don't really do that, you know. Um, I came to drag because it was a space where I basically got to start transitioning before I started transitioning. Um, you know, I lived in a community where everybody used she, her pronouns with me and understood me as just being one of the girls. Um, yeah. And as I've you know, continue to do drag and I grew as a drag queen. I never lost sight of the idea that um, 
for me, drag is a space to have fun being a girl, you know? Nice. Um, Which, yeah, is not really... um, The people who do drag that they call it, you know, like political drag, I'd say somebody like Disasterina, who, you know, she has her, like, she um, has this um, Shiva... um, Shiva outfit with a like a decapitated Donald Trump head that she you know wears you know that like that to me is like okay you're doing the political (laughs) thing um you're doing like this cosplay you're like really breaking from gender boundaries and you're also like have this like very clear message um I ended up just um you know I had fun being part of the neighborhood and just um, building a community and building friendships and that, you know, it's political in a really different way (laughs) Um, and a way that I have yet to be able to put my finger on. Um, It's a very quotidian way of being political. Um, So yeah, I did one, um one shoot strawberry did the photos um uh it's actually it's on my instagram at sadie pins s-a-d-i-e-p-i-n-s and it's um i did a uh shoot where i'm wearing um all like trans flag colored outfit um it's like an 80s trans flag colored outfit uh, my partner helped me put together this gargantuan wig that's like three wigs sewed together um and I, I was using it for a Cindy Lauper performance and I um I titled it Girls Just Want to Have Drugs and I have like this giant clown needle that I've made into like an estrogen needle and I have a bunch of pill <laughs> bottles and to me, you know, that that was like kind of a political statement, just considering the amount of trans erasure that happens in um trad communities. But um overall I just I just have fun. And that's, I think, one of the main things in life to have. So, (laughs) yeah. So lastly, um, in your paper, you mentioned some things that you've learned from Strawberry. And what do you think Mm -hmm. she and the drag scene in San Diego has learned from you? What do I think people in San Diego have learned from me? Well, um, they learned about transitioning. I kind of mentioned that already. Um, yeah. I think that when people watch my performances, the feedback I usually get um, is that it's clever. Um, so they've mm-hmm. learned about like, because I'm definitely a bit of an archivalist when it comes to my... Uh, the songs that I pick, um, I don't mm-hmm. do the same songs that everybody does, you know. Um, people right now, like everybody does Lizzo, everybody does uh, um, those songs from The Greatest Showman, everybody does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My partner's chiming in with like all the other ones that we've just seen too much. I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit different. Um, you know, I do... Cindy Lauper, when people like really don't bring that out anymore. Um, I did um, What If God Was One of Us, um, that uh-huh. song, Dressed as Satan. Um, 
I did um, the cores. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I did a lot of weird stuff. And I think nice. people like, you know, they, they've learned a little bit of like to be how to be clever. And I, I think, okay. you know, I have a lot of fun. Um, I'm not okay. really a, um, a like a, a bitchy drag queen. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sorry. Um, censorship warning. You can bleep it out if you want. I'm, I'm not one of those. Um, yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. one of those, you know, I'm, I'm someone who like smiles a lot when she's performing and I, I really interact with the audience a lot. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not like, I'm never worried about looking pretty, even though I, I try very hard yeah. to be pretty. Um, I, I'm never really worried about how pretty I look, <laughs> um, which I think a lot of other queens are mm-hmm. kind of like trying to look perfect and stunning and glamorous at every second. So, you know, those are maybe the things that people learn from me. Nice. Um, well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I had such a great time. And I, I think you asked some really wonderful questions. And I'm always really excited to talk about being an artist researcher and, um, you know, just talking about drag. Drag's fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of What Like It's Hard. Do let us know what you think. You can find us over on Facebook and Instagram under the handle at WLIH Podcast or the website, which is www.wlihpodcast.com. On the website, you'll find all of the details you need to participate with your own research through recording your own episode with us. Remember that when you subscribe through the WLIH Patreon page, you aren't just supporting the network here, you're also supporting the UK's leading student mental health charity, Student Minds. You can find all of that information and previous episodes on our website, which is once again www.wlih.com podcast.com. This is a bi-weekly podcast, so our next episode will be available in two weeks. For the time being, keep up to date with what's happening on social media and join our mailing list. For now, stay safe and you'll hear from us soon. Oh, uh, time to go. I have to go to class, but um, meet me after on the benches. Okay.